There are some scriptural books that when you turn to them in most Bibles, you find that the pages still stick together. These are the neglected books, the slighted slices of Scripture. And of all such books, Ezekiel is probably at the top of the list. One commentator writes, Of all the prophetic books, Ezekiel is the one that has been the most neglected. Let me save you from an embarrassing moment when you get to heaven. You don't want to bump into Ezekiel and have him ask you, Hey, man, how did you like my book? (laughs) Then have to admit that you never read it. Why Ezekiel is on the slighted list, I have no idea. It is such an exciting book. It reminds me of the sportscaster who was interviewing a victorious coach who had just led his team to a dramatic come-from-behind win. That's when the announcer stuck the microphone in the coach's face and shouts, Coach, was this win beyond your wildest dreams? The coach turned to the camera, and with this deadpan look on his face, he answered, Hey, basketball has never entered my wildest dreams. (laughs) Well, if you're looking for material for your wildest dreams, trust me, Ezekiel is loaded. Jeremiah looked through sobbing eyes. Ezekiel saw through surreal eyes. He was a visionary, a biblical mystic. He possessed a spiritual sensitivity, an otherworld focus. His head was always in the heavens. To appreciate Ezekiel's visions, we would have to employ the very best of Hollywood special effects. The book of Ezekiel makes today's sci-fi thrillers look like old Laurel and Hardy movies. Also understand, Ezekiel was a contemporary of two more famous friends, Jeremiah and Daniel. Ezekiel was in Babylon with Daniel. He mentions Daniel three times in the book. Tradition says that while Ezekiel was still in Jerusalem, he was a student of Jeremiah, and so he had ties with both men, Jeremiah and Daniel. Remember, too, three times the Babylonians invaded Judah and took the Jews captive in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. In the second deportation of Jews back to Babylon in 597, the Babylonians took some of Judah's brightest and most brilliant and most talented people. The good figs, as Jeremiah called them, included this man named Ezekiel. So here's how God positions his prophets at this strategic time in history. Jeremiah remains in Jerusalem to oversee the nation's collapse. Daniel serves in the Babylonian court along with Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel lives among the exiles in their Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah oversees the collapse. Daniel serves in the court. And Ezekiel lives with the captives. Here's another way to position the book of Ezekiel. The theme of Isaiah is God's salvation. The theme of Jeremiah is God's judgment. Daniel's theme is God's kingdom. Hosea's God's faithfulness. And the theme of Ezekiel is God's glory. In fact, Ezekiel starts his book with an amazing vision of God's indescribable glory. Verse 1 tells us, 
that it was given to him, this vision, by the river Chabar. Now, the Chabar was a canal. It was about 50 miles southeast of Babylon. It was built by Nebuchadnezzar to transport ships from the Euphrates to the Tigris rivers. The Chabar River and the communities surrounding it became the heart of the settlement of Jewish exiles. Ezekiel lived in a Babylonian town called Tel Aviv, not the modern city of Tel Aviv, which is on the Mediterranean, but this Babylonian suburb, Tel Aviv. It's interesting today, in the country of Iraq, this whole region is called the Kilfil, which in Arabic means Ezekiel. In verse 1, Ezekiel tells us, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel saw his vision of God in the thirtieth year, but the question becomes, the thirtieth year of what? And we don't really know. But I would suppose it could be his own thirtieth year which gives us a glimpse of what Ezekiel may have been dealing with personally at the time of this vision. You remember Ezekiel was a priest, and priests couldn't begin their ministry until the age of 30. Ezekiel had been training his whole life to minister in the temple. Now it's time. Now he's ready. Now he's 30 years old, but guess what? (laughs) He's no longer around the temple. He's been deported. 600 miles away to the land of Babylon. It would be like wanting to drive a car. You're so excited. You're about to turn 16 years old. Then on the eve of your birthday, Governor Barnes signs a bill that pushes the driving age back to 18. You're bummed. You're hugely disappointed. It all could have depressed Ezekiel if he had not had his eyes on God. In the 30th year of Ezekiel, God shifts his direction. Rather than priest, God turns this man into a prophet, a spokesman for the Lord. And his ministry begins not with serving, but with seeing the glory of God. He said, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Understand, this is always God's pattern. When we come to Jesus, we immediately get excited about wanting to serve Him. After all, look at all He's done for me. It's only natural that I would want to do in turn for Him. But we need to realize that in God's plan, knowing always precedes doing. Seeing comes before serving. Worship comes before work. How can we represent someone we really don't know? How can we serve another person effectively until we are sure and familiar with their priorities and with their passions? Before Ezekiel is given a ministry for God, he is given a vision of God. In chapter 1, Ezekiel recounts the spectacular vision, the sight that he saw, a vision truly beyond his wildest dreams. Let me sum it up for you. Ezekiel sees the throne of God, but it's not what we would think of as a throne. It's not some ornate, plush velvet, padded chair. No, God's throne is more than a chair. It's a chariot 
It's a throne chariot. It's a throne on wheels, propelled and powered by angelic propulsion. Ezekiel sees God's throne chariot. Scripture tells us that the box that Moses made, which held the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, was a small-scale replica of God's throne in heaven. And it's interesting that in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 18, when the ark is placed in the temple, it's referred to as a chariot. In Israel, we saw some ancient depictions of the ark, and it, often those depictions had wheels. It was a box on wheels. Remember, God took Elijah to heaven in a fiery chariot. We think of it as some angelic limo, but I don't think so. I believe that God fired up his own throne to swoop down and pick up Elijah. Deuteronomy 33 verse 26 declares, There is no one like God who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. God rides the heavens. 2 Samuel 22 verse 11 says of God, He rode upon a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. To me, it's cool to imagine God ripping across the heavens in this souped-up chariot. It's also biblical. Ezekiel sees God in a full-throttle, whirlwind-winging, fiery chariot. Verse 4 tells us, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. If you've seen those old newsreels, those footage of the first atomic blast, it gives you an idea of Ezekiel's vision. He saw this huge fireball spinning and descending out of the north. You remember Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 tells us, Our God is a consuming fire. And I'm sure Ezekiel would agree. Ezekiel wondered, though, how anything could exist within this fireball until he spotted some movement. He tells us in verse 5, From within it came the likeness of four living creatures. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, John 2 gets a glimpse of God's throne. And he also sees four living creatures. We'll learn later in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15, that these living creatures, these supernatural beings, are none other than cherubim, which we also know as a type of angel. Verses 5 through 14 describe these cherubim, or these four living creatures. Each angel had four faces, one like a man, one like a lion, one like an ox, and one like an eagle. They also had four wings, along with legs and feet and hands. They sparkled like polished brass. And they flashed across the sky like lightning. They resembled a burning torch. And since they have a face looking in all four directions, whichever direction they move, they're headed forward. They have this omnidirectional drivetrain that enables them to dart here and there at tremendous speeds. They can stop on a dime. They can turn in an instant. Verse 15 says, Now, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. Verse 16 describes the works or the motion of the wheel. It was a wheel 
in the middle of a wheel. In other words, these wheels looked like gyroscopes. They were spinning vertically and then horizontally, alternating back and forth, creating that gyroscope effect. They were alternating at tremendous velocity. The RPMs, man, were cooking. We're told in verse 19, the wheels moved in harmony with the living creatures. Verse 20 tells us, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. In other words, God's throne chariot is empowered by angels. And heaven will gauge a vehicle's performance, its acceleration, its pickup by noticing its angel power rather than its horsepower. Notice too in verse 18, the wheels have rims. God's chariot has mag wheels. The rims are full of eyes that spin spin around and see in all directions. Remember 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 tells us, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, there are some people who read chapter 1 and suggest that what Ezekiel really saw was a UFO. And there are some similarities between Ezekiel's vision and descriptions of alleged UFO sightings. UFOs are said to appear like a torch or like a flash of lightning, words used by Ezekiel. The prophet sees spinning wheels compared to alleged revolving saucers. The speed and the darting movements that Ezekiel describes parallel a UFO's flight pattern. Is there a correlation between Ezekiel's vision and alien spacecraft? It's interesting to me that a 1990 Gallup poll reported that 14% of Americans claim to have seen a UFO. It's astonishing. There are numerous military and NASA sightings that have bolstered the claim. Do UFOs exist? And did Ezekiel see an unidentified flying object? First, understand that Ezekiel has no problem identifying his flying object. (laughs) To the contrary, he knew exactly what he saw. It was the glory of God. What Ezekiel saw, as he's sure of, it was a manifestation of angels. And here's my suggestion. Rather than assume that Ezekiel mistook what he saw as the glory of God, is it possible that people today are mistaking what they see as UFOs? You remember Lucifer, Satan, was once a cherubim, this same type of angel. Could it be that Satan and his angels, his fallen angels or demons, are again materializing in the physical realm in an effort to deceive modern man? Alan Hynek was an Air Force investigator on Project Blue Book. And in the early stages of his research, Hynek believed that UFOs were alien spacecraft from other quarters of the universe. But after years of examining UFO behavior, he changed his mind. He concluded that the characteristics he observed violated laws of aerodynamics and laws of physics and more often resembled phenomena that was associated with the occult. Heineck came to believe that the UFOs are part of a parallel reality slipping in and out of sequence with our own. UFOs, in other words, 
are interdimensional, not interplanetary. Author Tal Brooks also writes, The old angel of light is back in the sky with new aerial phenomena and projection equipment geared to capture and deceive a culture jaded, yet credulously hunting for supernatural wonders in the heavens. It's just my opinion. But I believe that some of the UFO sightings are real phenomena, but they are of a satanic origin. They're a satanic setup. They are fallen angels or demons materializing in the physical realm in order to deceive us and to cause us to believe in interplanetary travel. I believe it's a satanic setup. I believe that it's a deception designed to lure people away from God and into the occult and the new age and away from the truth of Scripture. UFOs could be the way that Satan ends up trying to explain away the rapture. Up until now, Ezekiel has been looking under the hood of God's throne chariot. He's described the engine and the chassis. But in verse 22, he describes the body of the chariot. The lightness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. Wow, what what a ride. Like a huge crystal. You know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask my heavenly father if I can borrow the keys to the family car and take this throne chariot out for a spin. You probably will too, but wait your turn. I get first dibs. In verse 24, God suddenly cranks up his throne chariot. Ezekiel describes the roar as the Lord revs up. I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. That's when Ezekiel looks into the cab. And he sees who's sitting on the throne of God. He sees this throne. It's like a sapphire, he says, or like a bluish colored stone. And it's surrounded with a rainbow as a headliner. And then high above the driver's seat, Ezekiel sees the person driving the chariot. His appearance has a fiery glow about him. I personally believe that the driver of the chariot is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Proof that God does let his kids drive his car. There's hope. In response to the glorious vision, Ezekiel hits the deck. He falls on his face in humility. Now that Ezekiel has seen the Lord, he is ready to serve the Lord And in chapter 2, verse 1, God comes to commission him. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. Isn't it ironic? When you compare Ezekiel's experience with what happens in many charismatic services today. In a Benny Hinn meeting. Supposedly, it's the Holy Spirit who knocks you down, while it's man who lifts you up. But that's not what happens to Ezekiel. Notice the prophet humbles himself. He falls on his face before the Lord. Then it's the Spirit who lifts him back up to his feet. 
Hey, the Holy Spirit doesn't slay us. The Holy Spirit helps us stand. In verse 3, Ezekiel continues. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. In 1922... Clocks all over the world were advanced 20 minutes to make up for a discovered discrepancy. All the clocks, that is, but one. There was a man who lived in Coventry, England, who refused to comply. He was so stubborn that he lived the rest of his life 20 minutes behind everyone else. He was always late. He couldn't hold a job. His stubbornness made his life miserable. Stubbornness can do that. The Jews were just as stubborn. They refused to set their clocks to God's time. They wanted to plot their own course. No one would tell them what to do. And it also made their lives miserable. In verse 6, God tells Ezekiel not to be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks. Barbs and stares should bounce off the faith of a believer. If you're intimidated by frowns and scowls and empty threats, you won't get very far for God. It reminds me of the woman and her husband who were on vacation when their trip was interrupted by a visit to the dentist. She told the dentist, she said, just pull the tooth. Don't even bother with the Novocaine. We're in a big hurry and want to get back on our vacation. Amazed at the woman's courage, the dentist asked, ma'am, which tooth is it? And that's when the woman turned to her husband and said, Honey, show him the tooth. (laughs) Well, Ezekiel's also told to have courage. In chapter 3, verse 9, God says that he's going to make Ezekiel's forehead harder than flint. In other words, to counter the stubborn people, he's going to make a stubborn minister. And God gives Ezekiel a little stubbornness of his own. Call it a sanctified stubbornness. Call it a holy hard-headedness. Often it's needed. At the end of chapter 2, God hands Ezekiel a scroll, which he's told to eat. And in Ezekiel 3, verse 3, he says, So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. And here's the point God is making to Ezekiel. His word needs to be digested. God's word needs to be consumed. Don't just nibble on God's word when you read it. Man, scarf it down. Pig it out. Chew on it for a while. I love to watch little kids eat French fries. This was how my kids ate French fries. You'd sit them down. They'd get the ketchup. They would pour a big mound, I mean a gallon of ketchup on their plate. Then they would take the French fries... And they would just dip it into the ketchup. And I mean, just soak, you know, just just pick up as much ketchup on their French fry as they can. Put it in their mouth and just lick the ketchup right off the French fry. Put the French fry right back down on the plate. They weren't eaters. They were lickers. They were sippers. They just liked to lick off the sweet stuff. There used to be a Lipton ad that intended to portray the tea as a bold, feisty kind of drink. You remember the punchline? This ain't no sipping tea. Well, this ain't no sipping book. 
You can't just lick it. You can't just superficially taste it. You've got to get into it and consume it and chew it and digest it. You've got to absorb its message. As you go through the Bible, make sure that you're allowing the Bible to go through you. Chapter 3 has a message for you and me. God tells Ezekiel that if he had been sent to foreigners, they would have listened to him. But his target audience was the Jews. He had been sent to folks who had heard it all before. You know, sometimes we think the missionary who's called to go overseas to people who've never heard the gospel has the toughest job. But I'm not so sure. We live in a part of the country where people were reared in church. And they know just enough about the Bible to get a false sense of security. They've heard it all before. They've walked the aisle at some point in their past. And they think that's all there is to following Jesus. These kind of people make for a tougher nut to crack. Like you and me, Ezekiel needs the help and power of the Holy Spirit. Which is what he receives in chapter 3 verse 12. The Spirit picks him up. And plops him in God's throne chariot. He gets to ride in the chariot. And the Lord takes him back to Tel Aviv, where God wants him to begin his ministry. Ezekiel's experience with God wipes him out. You can imagine. He collapses. He's exhausted. He just crashes. And when he arrives in Tel Aviv, he sits astonished for seven days. No doubt reflecting on the glory of the Lord that he's seen. At the end of chapter 3, he gets another nudge to get on with his ministry. You remember in ancient times, watchmen were stationed on top of the city's walls as lookouts. Their job was to spot approaching danger. And God has appointed Ezekiel as a spiritual watchman over Israel. It's his job to look out for danger and to sound the alarm when he sees it. If the warning goes unheeded, the Lord tells him he's done his job. He's not responsible for the results. He's only responsible for delivering the message. But if he goes to sleep on the job, or if he gets distracted, if he neglects to sound the alarm, God will hold him responsible for the destruction. Guys, you and I have also been called to be watchmen on the wall. And let me ask you, who are the people within your walls? Who are the folks within your circle of concern? Your sphere of influence. People at work, certainly. Neighbors, of course. Family members, friends at the swim swim club, colleagues at the gym. Hey, you're not responsible for how people will react to the message. Just as long as you speak up and deliver the message and sound the alarm. Are you a good watchman? Remember, God holds you and me responsible for getting the message to the people within our walls. In chapter 3, verse 23, Ezekiel receives a repeat of chapter 1, another vision of the glory of God. Apparently, God loves driving around in this souped-up chariot, and he appears to Ezekiel all over again. This time, though, rather than speak, God tells Ezekiel to go home and remain silent. In fact, God promises to make the prophet mute. Surprisingly, God turns Ezekiel into his spokesman, tells him to get going, and then pushes pause. But here's God's point. One of the signs of God's judgment will be his silence. 
When I was a child, my dad's scoldings weren't nearly as troubling to me as were his silences. It was like the calm before the storm. (laughs) It was like, I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what I'm about to get. I wonder what he'll do. And the suspense alone was enough to create some agitation within me. God called Ezekiel to speak, to establish him as a prophet. Then God makes him mute and turns off the sound as a sign of judgment on these people. This is the first of several object lessons that Ezekiel will act out. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus spoke in parables. Ezekiel lived in parables. God sums up Ezekiel's ministry in chapter 24, verse 24, when he says, Thus Ezekiel is a sign to you according to all that he has done. Ezekiel was a sign himself by the things he acted out. He was constantly acting out a spiritual skit. I like to call Ezekiel the stuntman of the Bible. With God's prompting, Ezekiel would do some wild, some bizarre, often outrageous stuff. Ezekiel should have won an Oscar for best actor. And speaking of spiritual stunts, check out chapter 4. Ezekiel gets a part in Toy Soldiers 2. He's told to make a clay model of the city of Jerusalem. Build it like it's under siege, like an army is attacking it. Then he's told to take an iron plate, something like a frying pan, and put his face up against it. And here's the picture that he paints. God will leave Jerusalem surrounded and attacked by the Babylonians, and their sin will be like an iron plate. It will separate them from God. The only way to remove that iron plate is through their repentance and through their faith in God's promise of a Savior. Here's another skit that stars Ezekiel. He's to lay on his left side for 430 days, nearly 15 months. One day for each year of Israel's rebellion. Then after he's done, he's to turn around and lay on his right side another 40 days. One day for each year of Judah's sin and rebellion. God says to Ezekiel in verse 8, And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. In other words, this is not some sort of ceremonial observance on the part of Ezekiel. He is literally being forced to lay here on his side for 470 days. Now, I'm telling you, that deserves an Oscar. Imagine the saddle sores that he incurred, particularly on his left side, which to me illustrates another lesson. Sometimes obedience to God can hurt. Sometimes doing God's will will produce sores. When God restrains you, when God tells you not to move from the place where he has positioned you, it can be painful. It can hurt. Maybe you've been put in a tough marriage. Maybe in an unbearable job or in a friendship that's being tested or perhaps in a church where you've become bored. Hey, it's not always easy to lie down when you feel like wanting to walk off. 
Everybody else screams for you to take a stand, but God is saying, stay on your side. There are times to stand up, but there are also times to stay down. And guys, if you are obedient to God, where He has placed you, He will sustain you, He will strengthen you, and He will use you as a witness to others, just like He did Ezekiel. He'll speak to others through your commitment. Perhaps one of the most important jobs for us to learn, one of the most strategic things for us to know how to do is to lie down on the job. Now, if you think lying on his side was a difficult part for Ezekiel to play, you ain't seen nothing yet. For in the next skit, God calls Ezekiel to become a vegetarian. How awful. He's to go on a diet of nothing but wheat, barley, lentils, millet, and spelt. Hey, brother, where's the beef? But that's not the worst of it. Even what he's given to eat, the rations are meager. Verse 10 limits Ezekiel to 20 shekels a day of food, only 10 ounces. Verse 11 limits him to one-sixth of a hen of water. One-sixth of a hen of water. And you know how much a hen weighs? You catch one, about 10 pounds. You know, a hen, a chicken, about 10 pounds. But it's just a joke. It's okay. It went over your head. I'll bet Ezekiel by this point was thinking about a plump, juicy hen. That's for sure. Really, though, one-sixth of a hen of water, again, is not a lot. It's about a quart, not very much. Understand, Ezekiel is not on some kind of a wild diet. What he's doing here is he's mimicking siege conditions. You see, when a city is surrounded and their water supply is cut off, It begins to ration its water. It begins to ration its food. It cuts back on the portions. You also can't go outside of the city during a siege to chop down trees and gather firewood. There's also nowhere to buy Kingsford charcoal in a siege. And that's why God tells Ezekiel to cook his barley cakes over human waste. Now... When God tells Ezekiel to do this, he comes unglued. Remember, he's a priest. And from his earliest days, he's kept the Jewish dietary laws. Ezekiel is a kosher kid. And he doesn't want to defile himself by cooking his food over human waste. Here, though, is an interesting point for us to consider. Most of the time, we should follow our conscience. We tell our kids that. But at times... God's command can contradict our conscience. You see, your conscience can be trained by some unbiblical programming, by tradition rather than truth. And a legalistic conscience can sometimes hinder us and interfere with us following the Lord. You remember in Acts chapter 10, this was the issue when God appeared to Peter and told him to eat the unkosher food. Peter at first balked. God was asking Peter to do something that was against his upbringing and his tradition. 
it became a point of, do I listen to my conscience or do I listen to the Lord? God makes one concession for Ezekiel. Rather than human waste, God allows him to cook over cow chips, over animal waste. You might say it was a merciful move on God's part. Apparently, Ezekiel was rewarded for placing obedience to God over his own conscience. And so when you get to heaven and you meet Ezekiel, make sure you tell him, Well done, good and faithful servant. In chapter 5, Ezekiel shaves his head for another skit. And not with a razor, but with a sword. Imagine Michael Jordan trying to shave his head with a sword. He'd cut himself, he'd nick himself. His head would look like a blood-covered coconut. But this is the point. God wants Ezekiel to look like he's been to battle, look like he's taken his lumps. Jerusalem is about to be shaved. Ezekiel cuts his hair into three clumps. He burns a third, which represents the Jews who die in the famine. Another third are chopped up by the sword, those who die in battle. And the final third gets scattered to the wind, those who will end up being dispersed. In chapter 6, Ezekiel predicts the Babylonians will butcher the Jews and their corpses will fall down before their idols. Judah will be judged for her idolatry. I like how theologian Paul Tillich defines idolatry. He says, idolatry is the, evola- idolatry is the elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. The elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. Think about that. Money, a house, a vacation, your favorite sports team. They all have their place. They are all preliminary concerns. But when they reach an importance that rises to a place of ultimacy, they become an idol. Beware. Look in verse 9, how God responds to Judah's idolatry. He says, I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me, and by their eyes, which play the harlot after their idols. Can you imagine? God says, I was crushed. Like a spurned lover, God was crushed by their wayward hearts. Here is the Almighty. Here is the invincible God of the universe saying that He's been crushed. You're not very powerful in one sense. But in another sense, you have the power to break God's heart. That's incredible to me. When you flirt with temptation, when you elevate a preliminary concern over the ultimate concern of His glory, when you let trivial things crowd out your love for God, your focus upon Him, it all causes God incredible pain. It's been said the worst sin or the, what is the worst part of sin 
is not that it breaks God's law, but that it breaks God's heart. Think about that. In chapter 6, Ezekiel performs another stunt. Thus says the Lord God, pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Chapter 7 describes Judah's judgment in the form of a poem. Ezekiel describes the conditions in the besieged city of Jerusalem. God says in verse 9, My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes you. The Lord who strikes you is actually a name, a compound name for God, but it's not a name that we usually use. We like to call God healer, comforter, provider, not striker. But unless you think this means that God is cruel or that God is violent or that God is mean, remember what God strikes. He puts the world's sin on the shoulders of his own son and then he strikes him. God struck his only son. And Isaiah tells us, by his stripes, we are healed. Jehovah Naka, the Lord who strikes. According to verse 19, the situation behind the walls of Jerusalem will become so grim that people will throw away their money. Why? Because their money will, there will be nothing for their money to buy. All of the resources, all of the supplies will be depleted. Robbers will pick the temple clean of its treasures. Verse 26 sums it all up. Disaster will come upon disaster. The chapter ends with an assurance from God that His purpose will be fulfilled. His discipline will cause the Jews to know that I am the Lord, He says. Remember, God told Moses in Leviticus that He would reveal His glory to the Jewish people either by the magnitude of his mercies or by the magnitude of his judgments. God will make himself known. He would prefer to do so by pouring out his blessing. But if we rebel against him, he will do so by pouring out his curses. Chapters 8 through 11 record one of the saddest events in the Bible. When God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt, they were led through the wilderness by the glory cloud of God. A visible manifestation, remember, of God's holy presence and power. The Hebrews called it the Shekinah, which means simply glory. It appeared as a cloud in the daytime and as a fireball at night. When Moses built the tabernacle and then later when Solomon built the temple... You remember the Shekinah came to rest in the inner sanctum of both buildings, in the Holy of Holies. And for 853 years, God left a tangible, visible token of His presence in the midst of His people. God wanted Israel to live with the assurance that He was with them. And so in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory pulsated and glowed. Most Jews grew to take God's gift for granted. 
They believed that the Shekinah glory was a permanent fixture. That there was nothing really they could do to drive it away. Ezekiel lets them know that they're wrong. In chapter 8, verse 1, Ezekiel records the date. It was September the 17th, 592 B.C., and that was the day the glory cloud of God began to depart from the temple. It left slowly. It left reluctantly. It left lingeringly. But the presence of the Lord departed the temple. And September the 17th was the day it began to depart. Ezekiel is holding an elders meeting here when suddenly the man with the fiery appearance he saw back in chapter 1 appears to him. The man grabs Ezekiel by the hair, gets him in a hairlock, and whisks him from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Ezekiel describes his trip in verse 3, The Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the north gate of the inner court of the temple. Whether Ezekiel was actually transported or it all occurred in a vision, we don't know. But what matters is what he saw. And what he saw was a temple chock full of idols. He first sees right by the altar what he calls the image of jealousy. That's what all idols are in a sense. God wants our unrivaled love. And he becomes jealous when other things begin to preoccupy our attention. Ezekiel is taken on a tour of this defiled temple. And in each chamber, he sees a different form of idol worship. He sees elders bowing to the beasts of the earth. In another place, he sees women weeping before Tammuz, the Babylonian god of fertility. And there at the holy place, in the very heart of the temple, he sees men worshiping the sun in the eastern sky. Verse 17 tells us that this was not a trivial issue to God. This idolatry provoked him to anger. In fact, we're told in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed in linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. Now understand, these are not ordinary men. Often scripture will refer to angels as men because angels appear in the form of men. They look human to us at times. These guys, though, are angels with an axe to grind, quite literally. Six of them come with a battle axe. They're ready to ravage. The seventh man has an inkwell and a pen. He is ready to record. The man with the inkhorn is told to go throughout the city and find those Jews who are repentant, who are broken over their sin. He's to put a mark in their forehead. The other six angels are to go out behind him and kill everyone without the mark. It reminds us of Revelation chapter 7 where the 144,000 witnesses are sealed with a mark in their forehead, and it's that seal that protects them from the plagues of the Great Tribulation. There are two other points, though, I want to make from this chapter. First, the axe-toting angels 
are told in verse 6 to begin killing at the temple and move outwards. You know, this sets a precedent that even Peter observes some 600 years later when he writes to the church and says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin. Where? At the house of God. Perhaps he was thinking back to Ezekiel chapter 9. In other words, people with the closest access to the things of God have the greater accountability. We need to remember that. And notice verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel has gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. Notice the glory cloud now begins to move. It's gone from above the ark to the door of the holy place. God's glory doesn't leave all at once. It leaves slowly. It leaves almost reluctantly. In chapter 10, God's throne chariot roars up. The man who's escorting Ezekiel, the man with the fiery appearance, tells the guy with the inkhorn to go within the wheels of the chariot and take from among the cherubim some hot coals from the fire. Apparently a fire burns under the hood of God's throne chariot. In another act of judgment, he then takes those coals and he scatters them over the city. In verse 4 of chapter 10, Ezekiel sees the glory cloud fill the court of the temple. But notice his terminology. He refers to the Shekinah glory as the brightness of the Lord's glory. The Shekinah glory was to God as the flash of a camera is to light. It's the brightness of God's glory. Now, this terminology is interesting, especially when you get over to Hebrews chapter 1, because there Jesus is referred to by the very same term he is called the brightness of God's glory. Could it be that the glory of God in the Old Testament temple was none other than the presence of Jesus Christ? What a provocative thought. That there, year after year, as the sacrifices were brought and presented, Jesus was right there to see those sacrifices and to see that they weren't enough, that an ultimate sacrifice would be required. Now, in chapter 1, Ezekiel referred to the angels by the wheels of God's throne chariot as living creatures. Here in chapter 10, he identifies those same angels as cherubim. Ezekiel tries his best to describe this incredible vision of God's throne. But you get the impression from his description that words just don't do justice. And Ezekiel knows it. In fact, you can feel his frustration in verse 13. I think it's kind of funny what he says. He says, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing wheel. In other words, hey, I'm doing the best I can. That's what I heard. It's what I'm telling you. You know, don't push it. Ezekiel sees the glory of God move again. In verse 19, he watches as it climbs aboard the chariot and as it's taken out to the eastern gate, the temple's entrance and exit. The glory of God is about to depart the temple once and for all. You remember in Jeremiah 29, the prophet had told the Jews in Babylon to settle down, to make themselves at home. Jerusalem was about to be destroyed and their captivity would last 70 years. But there were Jews in Jerusalem who disagreed. In verse 3, they say, This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat 
In other words, Jerusalem is still where the action is. We're still God's choice cuts. But the Spirit anoints Ezekiel in verse 5, and he prophesies to the contrary. Jerusalem is the cauldron, but the only meat that will stay in the pot are the slain who die in battle. Everyone who survives the assault, in other words, will be taken to Babylon. This prophecy upsets Ezekiel, for he loves these people. And he cries out in verse 13, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? You remember at this same time, this same question was swirling through the head and heart of Jeremiah. And remember how God responded to him. He promised Jeremiah and the Jews a new covenant. God would write his law in their hearts and on their minds. And that is also the covenant here that he affirms with Ezekiel. In verse 16, he promises that he won't abandon his people, that he will be a sanctuary to them in their exile. Verse 18 notes how the years in captivity will cure the people of their idolatry. And in verse 17, we have described how God will gather up the Jews and return them to Israel. And the climax of this new covenant is in verses 19 and 20. There God promises His people a new heart. He will take out the hard, stony heart and replace it with a sensitive heart. And guys, this is what He does for us when we come to Jesus Christ. You see, before you come to the Lord, your basic nature resists God. It's sinful. It's rebellious. But in Christ, you get a new nature. One that is compliant to God. One that is compassionate to others. It's fascinating to me that even as the presence of God is leaving the Old Testament temple, God is promising to fill a new temple with His presence. The temple of our hearts. At the end of chapter 11, Ezekiel sees God's glory move again from the east gate to the top of the mountain east of Jerusalem. From there, it will eventually ascend to heaven. The mountain east of Jerusalem, remember, is the Mount of Olives. But what a tragic moment. Eight and a half centuries. The Shekinah glory has been abiding among God's people. Now, suddenly... The presence of God returns back to heaven. Jerusalem loses its sense of God's presence, that anointing within its midst. And it loses it because of its perpetual stubbornness. She refused to repent. Once in high school, I was set up on a blind date. The only blind date I ever had in my life. And it was also the shortest date of my life. It lasted a total of 30 minutes. But those 30 minutes seemed like three hours. She didn't like me, and I didn't like her, and there was no reason for either one of us to waste our time trying to cultivate a like for one another. Compare that, though, to the experience I had dating my future wife. 